This is the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I am Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to be discussing a practice-changing article on the cardiovascular effects of alcohol, a topic that is particularly relevant to those of us in primary care. So how are you doing today, Sonia? I'm doing well. It's been a very busy week at work, but I'm happy to have a good job. I saw a lot of really interesting patients, and I'm excited to record this podcast. That sounds nice. Yeah, it's been a really nice week over here as well. Just a a long uh, summertime uh, office sessions with a lot of people out of the office. You know how it is in primary care. But overall, it's it's been good, and I've been enjoying this really nice summer so far. Yeah, me too. So anything exciting going on in addiction medicine this week? I did see something new and exciting. I mean, I always see something new in addiction medicine every time I see patients, but there was something that really struck me this week. It was learning about and then seeing probably the effects of a adulterant that's in a lot of the drug supply right now called xylazine. Is that something that you've heard of or seen patients using? I have heard about it, but I've never seen someone directly be using this or at least knowing they're using it. So back in April, I attended a webinar from the National Coalition on Harm Reduction about xylazine and the drug supply. And then I did a little bit of reading about it. And just for our readers who might not know, xylazine is a veterinary tranquilizer. Sometimes on the street, it's called Trank. And last time, the data I could find, it was present in 26% of the opioid overdose deaths in Pennsylvania, where we are in 2020, probably even more now in 2022. I'll include a link in the show notes to an NIH fact sheet about xylazine if anyone wants to know more. And the reason I was thinking about this was that I admitted a patient to the hospital for injection-related wounds, and they had the characteristic look of injection wounds caused by xylazine. The patient themselves did not know if there was xylazine in their supply, but given its prevalence, I wouldn't be surprised if there were. It's an alpha agonist, and so can cause local vasoconstriction when injected and tends to cause skin necrosis and in a much broader area than just the direct injection site. So you can get huge patches of necrosis, you know, traditionally all over the arms, but all the legs too, where anybody might inject. And you can have exposure of the underlying deep tissues, muscle, fascia, tendons, and even bone. And sometimes quite far from the immediate injection site. So I had seen a patient with those kinds of characteristic wounds, and we did admit the patient for wound care and were able to manage the opioid withdrawal with buprenorphine, which was really nice. And they were discharged after a few days, and I hope that they do well. But it was just something I was thinking about. And just for our audience, it also causes severe and probably synergistic respiratory depression and might be a factor in patients who have what you might call a naloxone-resistant overdose. So the patient is overdosing, looks like opioids, but minimal effect from naloxone or requiring super high doses or a naloxone drip. We've often thought those patients just took so much fentanyl or some other fentanyl analog, but perhaps they've got xylazine on board as well. And as I said in the beginning, xylazine was present. I won't say it was the cause of, but it was present in 26% of the overdose deaths here in Pennsylvania. So I'll put some links in the show notes, and I would love to hear from any of our listeners who have experience with xylazine or have seen those kinds of deep atypical injection site wounds on patients. How about you, John? Have you ever, you said you haven't seen anyone with xylazine? 
You know, I'll be honest with you, though, uh, kind of injection site uh, skin necrosis is something we all see pretty frequently. I, I think I've often kind of just accounted that for uh, people kind of co-injecting with stimulants like methamphetamine or cocaine, which also cause that kind of vasoconstriction effect. But, you know, I guess clinically, it could be xylazine in these cases as well. And I've just kind of chalked this up to something else erroneously. Well, right. And according to the webinar I went, there's xylazine in some places in the majority of opiate the majority of opiates that are being sold illicitly. So there probably is xylazine in the drugs people are using. What's the benefit of cutting with that? Or or do they talk about that at all? You know, it's a co-sedative. And so it can potentiate the effects possibly of of the heroin or of the opiate. So it does sort of enhance in some ways. In Puerto Rico at this webinar, they said that you can purchase, people will purchase their xylazine almost as a separate compound. You purchase the two together and then each person can mix it up as they see fit, however much xylazine versus opiate that they want in their personal injection. That's interesting. Interesting, but dangerous. So I'm, I, I also feel scared that people are out there doing this kind of stuff to themselves. So, you know, whatever we can do to help, it's definitely, definitely increases the risk of overdose death. How about you? Anything strike you in addiction medicine this week? I think the big talk, at, at least at my office right now in addiction medicine and with a lot of my patients is uh, they seem to have caught on to the fact that uh, menthol and uh, a lot of these flavored uh, tobacco vaporizing products are, are possibly being banned by the FDA coming up. It's really interesting. I think we talked briefly about it before, but back in April, they kind of the FDA that has the oversight of tobacco contents and what's kind of in your nicotine containing products, uh, they put out basically a, a flyer that they're debating removing those and they have the authority to do so from from Congress. And they are going to really target uh, menthol, but also these kind of flavored tobacco additives and flavored uh, vape products. And a lot of patients really like these and a lot of patients use these. And I think that now that they're hearing about this, they're also some of them are very upset to hear this. And I think it's interesting, probably about the other half of it is also, I hear a lot of patients that are excited about this, even though they actively consume these products, they feel like this might be what they can finally use to get off of these. So I think that's probably the most relevant to most of us. And, you know, the FDA has that listening campaign going out just for another week now till early July, July 5th, but then they're going to be making a decision. And we'll, we'll see whether or not that uh, public uh, pressure sways them one way or another. Yeah, it's... I think it's a great move because I think anything to make these tobacco-like or nicotine products less appealing is is good. I have heard some people in the harm reduction community say that, you know, if you're thinking of vaping as a substitute for smoking or as a way to help people quit smoking tobacco, then the flavored, you know, the flavored vaping, you know, vapes are more appealing. And actually patients have better success with them if they're using it as a substitute for tobacco smoking. So I think there's been a little bit of complaining about that, that we're taking away a valuable harm reduction substance. But I don't totally agree. I think I think these things are heavily marketed to non-smokers. It's not just a quit tool. And it's, you know, a new addictive product that people are starting. And I think anything to make it less appealing is a good idea. Yeah, I think it's hard to say that fruity tutti tobacco products are, are marketed towards adults for the most part. I mean, I know some of my patients got really upset when I said that, but it uh, it seems like that definitely is trying to target um, a smoking population that's probably not of age yet. Yeah, well, we'll have to see. We'll have to see what 
what the future brings for these these vaping products. Do you have many patients that do transition off of combustible tobacco over to one of these vapes? No, my patients have mostly experienced what I see in the literature about using vaping as a smoking cessation technique, which is they start to vape and then they vape and smoke. So vaping is a smoking reduction tool, but it doesn't seem to lead a lot of people to full cessation. Um, I sometimes will have people really use it as part of their quit attempt, the same way they use nicotine gum or a patch, but very few who are trying to quit smoking switch to vaping. Yeah, it's anecdotally, that's what I see as well. And I think the literature is pretty strong on that at this point that, you know, it's probably not the most efficacious for, for smoking cessation entirely. Well, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think if people really want to quit smoking, it's not a bad tool. But most of my patients who are vaping don't have a strong commitment to quit smoking. That's not their goal. Their goal is more that smoking is inconvenient or difficult or they're not allowed to smoke around whatever family member. So they switch to vaping, but they're not really committed to quitting smoking. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about this really good article that you have tonight. I am so excited to talk about this article. I actually am going to be talking about this article nonstop for the next six weeks because I'm using it as my sample article with our internal medicine residents. I run Journal Club and I'll be giving lots and lots of sample Journal Club seminars over the next few weeks to demonstrate how to present an article. And this is the one I chose. So I'm going to get to know it really, really well. And I'm excited to present it here on this podcast. So this article is titled Association of Habitual Alcohol Intake with Risk of Cardiovascular Disease. It was published in JAMA Open Network 2022, so this year, and the lead author is K.J. Bittinger. It's just a great article for primary care, and it's not directly related to addiction medicine in that it doesn't deal with people with alcohol use disorder, but it deals with alcohol, which is a huge topic in addiction medicine, and it deals with the cardiovascular effects of alcohol, which is huge for primary care. So a little bit of background, previous large population-based studies have shown a link between low and moderate alcohol use and cardiovascular benefits with a J-shaped epidemiological association. What this means is that at very low levels, you have a higher mortality at moderate levels, which for alcohol is four to seven drinks per week, you have the best mortality and then the mortality the lower mortality and the mortality goes up again with more drinks. So you have a J-shaped curve with the lowest mortality being at a moderate intake of four to seven drinks per week. There are other compounds, of course, that have J-shaped curves. There are many things that are required for life where if you have none of it, you don't do well. If you have some, you do well. And if you have too much, you don't do well again. Everything from oxygen to water to food, anything we need to live, if you overdo it, it can have a toxic effect. And if you don't get enough, you're not well. But that doesn't seem to be the case for any toxins. Alcohol is not required for life. And it's always been a mystery why people who drink moderate alcohol would somehow do better from a cardiovascular standpoint, especially given the clear toxicity of alcohol at higher doses. The biologic underpinnings of this remain unknown despite tons of research and many, many theories The other problem with research into alcohol and cardiovascular effects is that there are co-founding lifestyle factors that have not been eliminated. There have been very few actual randomized controlled trials where patients were given either alcohol or placebo and then followed to see what kind of cardiovascular mortality they might have. And shockingly, such trials actually have been attempted, 
And I don't know how they got past the initial IRB, but the only one that ever got carried out was immediately stopped as soon as, I guess, some other supervisor heard about it. So really, we haven't, we don't have a randomized controlled trial of alcohol in cardiovascular disease. There's just too many ethical considerations. So it's all prospective cohort studies based on interviews, and you just can't eliminate the co-founders. So for instance, do people who drink alcohol moderately, do they exercise more? Do they eat healthier food? Do they eat more vegetables? Are they genetically, you know, culturally from an ethnic group that has less cardiovascular disease, but also drinks alcohol moderately? We just haven't been able to sort that out. And so this paper looked again at this question, whether alcohol use correlates with cardiovascular disease. And you might think it's been settled. Everyone says, oh, red wine is good for you. A glass of red wine at dinner is good for your heart. But that is not a settled research question. So our authors have reopened it with this current study. So John, do your patients tell you that a glass of red wine is good for their heart? Or do you tell your patients a glass of red wine is good for them? You know, maybe it's because I also do addiction medicine. I, I typically don't advocate for alcohol for medicinal benefits. I, I had a, a cardiologist that taught me in residency, and he was really a, a very smart guy, and he did preventive cardiology. And this is before even this was under debate. And he would tell me, well, you know, if you really want to get benefit from alcohol, it needs to be taken like a medicine then, which means a fixed dose over a normal period of time, but it's not meant for you to have like just on the weekends or five glasses of wine. And he goes, and, and most people that doesn't, he's like, that's not compatible with, with a healthy lifestyle for the most part. So he really recommended against it, even when this was kind of still in favor. I often think that patients kind of associate this just because the Mediterranean diet just has such an overwhelming positive health outcomes. And that tends to be like the pandia of diets. And I think we associate that, that red wine is part of that, although that may not necessarily be the case. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I have told my patients that moderate alcohol consumption is not bad for them and in fact is associated with better cardiovascular outcomes, but I've never strongly advocated that someone take up alcohol use if they don't already drink. I've sort of been neutral on it, and but I have told people it's probably not bad for you. It's fine. A few glasses of wine a week is good. So I definitely was telling people that before, but this study has changed my uh, mind on that. Spoiler alert, everybody. But when you tell them, you're, you're saying that when they would bring up the concept, you would tell them, you would not basically counsel against it, but you wouldn't advocate for them to take this at any point in time, would you? No. You know, when I'm doing my annual physicals and I ask patients about alcohol use and they say, oh, well, I have a glass of wine with dinner a few nights a week. I say, okay, that's fine. That's about right here too. <laughs> you know, but maybe not. So let's start talking about this study. So the clinical question, and I just want everyone to keep this in mind as I talk. So, you know, this paper has a lot of statistics in it. And so if you get confused about the statistics or lost in the details, just remember our basic, simple clinical question. What is the association between alcohol consumption and cardiovascular disease? That's the question. What is the association between alcohol consumption and cardiovascular disease? So when I'm talking about this study, the first thing I want to emphasize to our listeners is the study technique. This was the first time I had heard of this technique, and I thought it was really cool. They use something called Mendelian randomization as a proxy for a randomized controlled trial. So genetic variants associated with alcohol use are randomly assigned at conception. So if we assume that people with these variants do drink more alcohol, 
we can take the cohort of people with these genetic variants as our group randomized to alcohol use. This study used this technique, which has been used previously, but did not assume the relationship was linear as previous studies have done. So that was the big difference. So again, at conception, you are randomly assigned to receive a gene or not that predisposes you to drink alcohol. And that is our initial randomization. And then they looked at these people with these genetic variants and saw what their risk of cardiovascular disease was. The first question is, who is in this study? It included patients who had their data in the UK Biobank, which is a giant database that includes genetic data on patients, as well as data from interviews, including habits about alcohol and other lifestyle factors. The mean age of the patients was 52. 46% were men, and they consumed, on average, 9.2 alcoholic drinks per week. 33% had hypertension, 8% had coronary artery disease, and beer was the predominant drink among light and heavy drinkers, and red wine was the next most popular drink, 24% among light drinkers and 29% of the drinks among heavy drinkers. So again, British people, average age 52, pretty heavy drinkers, 9.2 on average drinks per week, and 38% of them, their drink of choice was beer. We looked at a harmful event, which was the genetic predisposition to alcohol intake as a proxy for kind of being randomized to, to drink alcohol. And it was compared to people who did not have that genetic predisposition. The outcomes was the association between the genetic propensity for alcohol consumption and cardiovascular disease. And that was defined as hypertension, coronary artery disease, myocardial infarction, stroke, CHF, and AFib. So is this trial valid? Um, before we talk about validity, John, what did you think about the technique and the clinical question in this paper? I mean, this question we're all asking, right, about, you know, what, what, who is this group that benefits, especially when you look at something like a J-shaped curve, who's the tail that doesn't consume and has the higher risk and what's the sweet spot for consumption and how linear is it? So I, I think that's something we all ask when we see these types of dose-dependent relationships, I think it's an interesting idea how they did this, this Mendelian randomization. I've never heard of this before, and I I kind of uh, philosophically kind of like the idea. It seems a very interesting way to kind of have like a randomized trial or pseudo-randomized trial without actually doing one. Yeah, it's super interesting. It's a little uncomfortable for me because it's many steps removed from the more clearer randomized controlled trial strategy where you would randomize actual people to drink actual alcohol. Here we have genetic randomization to a propensity to drink alcohol. So it doesn't actually look at actual alcohol consumption and people are not actually randomized. So there's some steps, but I I love the concept. So I was really excited to learn about it. Yeah. So you think it's valid yourself? You know what? It's been done before by super smart people. So I'm going to say, yes, it's valid. And I'll even leave a article in the show notes, one of the user's guide to the medical literature articles on how to interpret a Mendelian randomization. And our listeners can take a look and see if that helps them. And perhaps you'll want to do such a study in your future. So we ask if this trial is valid. And I think it was pretty good. It was a pretty large size, 371,000 plus participants. The groups were clearly defined as being quote unquote, exposed to alcohol and not, i.e. having this genetic predisposition or not having it. They measured the exposure and the clinical outcomes the same way in both groups. It was pretty good follow-up, six years, a little short for average risk population like this group, but not too short. It could have been longer, but I think it was long enough to see 
cardiovascular events. You always ask the question with these kinds of studies, is causation plausible? Is it plausible? Is there a biologic mechanism by which alcohol could cause harm? And yes, there is. And there's also a dose-response gradient, meaning that the more alcohol you drank, the more risk there was. So that also makes you feel that the correlation that they found was more valid. I think that's been the big problem with these J-shaped curves. It doesn't seem likely that alcohol, which is a known toxin, would somehow be good for you at this one low dose, but bad for you at, at nothing and also bad for you at a higher dose because it is a toxin and we have no known benefits to alcohol that we've ever been able to prove. Another thing that improves the validity of this study is they retested the genetic association using a different biobank. So there's an American biobank through Mass General Hospital, and they found the same associations. They did uh, sensitivity analyses using people who abstained completely from alcohol, just to see if the correlation would hold up with those people. And it was funded by the National Human Genome Research Institute, Massachusetts General Hospital, the NIH, and the American Heart Association. So those are all entities that I think are unlikely to cause bias. So in the end, I feel that this trial was valid. They also used the audit scores to record and characterize alcohol consumption. So that's a validated marker on, you know, alcohol use, and it's used in many studies. And they spent a lot of time talking about the construction of their genetic instrument. And they did find that it was very strongly associated with actual alcohol intake and GGT level, which is associated with alcohol intake as well. So they gave each patient this genetic score, which they used as a proxy for alcohol consumption, and they did their best to validate this score. But again, it is a proxy score. It's not actual alcohol consumption that they randomized patients to. But I think it was valid and a super interesting idea. And we don't have any other better options. So I think we got to go with what we have. What do you think? Did you think it was a good study? Yeah, I think overall it was. I think kind of similar thoughts about this kind of relatively novel way of looking at the data. But it was interesting in that regards, definitely. All right. So let's talk about the results. So again, just to remember our clinical question, what is the association between alcohol use and cardiovascular disease? So very simple clinical question. So basically, I'm going to summarize. The reported cardioprotective effects of light to moderate alcohol consumption are most likely the product of confounding lifestyle factors. There was a J-shape and a U-shaped curve for the associations of alcohol intake with cardiovascular disease, but light to moderate alcohol consumers across the board exhibited healthier lifestyles than abstainers. So they could not separate out that healthy lifestyle with the moderate alcohol users. They always came together. When they adjusted for a few of these lifestyle factors, that attenuated the protective associations between modest alcohol intake and cardiovascular risk. And further adjustments, they didn't even adjust for that many things. Further adjustments may attenuate or eliminate the residual cardioprotective associations completely. The other result is that light alcohol consumption was associated with cardiovascular risk, but it was minimal. And the risk increased exponentially at higher levels of intake. So there was not no risk at light drinking, four drinks a week, six drinks a week, but it was pretty small. And the risk really shot up pretty quickly when you got into the moderate to heavy drinkers. So this paper had a lot of graphs. And because this is a podcast, I'm not going to, um, you know, try to describe them. But again, just to keep in mind 
there was a cardioprotective effect seen with light to moderate drinking. However, when they adjusted for the co-founders, that effect went away. And so this J-shaped curve that we have, they really felt that it was due to co-founders, lifestyle co-founders, not any sort of protective effect of alcohol. And I was pretty surprised by this. You know, I, I really didn't, you know, they've, different people have looked at this in different ways and it's always come out the same. And these people really, really felt that it was due to co-founding lifestyle effects. So that's the results. What do you think? I think it is surprising, right? I think it's really been ingrained into our, our, our brain that, you know, this light alcohol intake may be beneficial in some regards. Although it's interesting, it's light at a, at a rate that a lot of people don't drink at. So, it, you know, it's, it's often not what you see in the office. But you always wondered, who is this group? And, you know, anecdotally, it often seems that people that kind of do engage in moderate alcohol consumption, they typically also engage in kind of other healthy habits kind of at the same time. I think of the people that report their highest volumes of drinking to me, you know, they often are smokers, lower socioeconomic status, and then vice versa, kind of moderate drinking tends to be like my my younger adult male patients that also exercise and, and eat well and, and put some emphasis on their life and their business professionals. So it, it is interesting in that regards. I'm glad we could finally get something, though, to tease out the other variables, right? Yeah. I mean, I think this was really helpful. You know, and the final question we ask is, will these results help me in patient care? So I think it will definitely. This is, a for me, a practice-changing article. So my patients are similar to the ones in this study. If you look at the benefits of alcohol, they really weren't able to come up with any. And you look at the risks of alcohol, the risks are increased cardiovascular disease, which is something very relevant to my patients. And I calculated the number needed to harm for some of these common diseases, just using prevalence in the general U.S. adult population. So the number needed to harm is how many patients would need to give up alcohol entirely to prevent one case of cardiovascular disease. So for hypertension, because it's so prevalent, 16 drinkers would have to give up alcohol to prevent one case of hypertension. Going all the way down to AFib, which has the weakest association with alcohol, 283 drinkers would have to give up alcohol entirely to prevent one case of AFib. When you look at MI, 94 drinkers would have to give up alcohol entirely to prevent one myocardial infarction. So although I might tell my patients that, yes, it's not good for your heart, and if you give it up, you'll lower your cardiovascular risk, it's not a super strong, you know, not a super strong recommendation. When you tell people, okay, if you give up alcohol entirely for the rest of your life, you have a one in 94 chance of not having a heart attack. That's a little less exciting. <laughs> and I'm not sure my patients would be as interested if you look at that number needed to harm. Yeah, I kind of agree, right? I mean, that, it is interesting. It's not, I think it's, it's good to know it's not a healthy habit, like going to the gym or eating an apple. I'm not sure, though, that the effect size here is, is something where I'm going to get on this, like the same as uh, my smokers and things like that, where there's like a number needed to harm of like two for some diseases for, for smoking. Right, for sure. So. To summarize, this study supports the claim that no amount of alcohol is protective against cardiovascular disease and that the adverse effects of alcohol unduly affect those who consume heavily. Improvements in cardiovascular health may be significant for heavier drinkers, but only slight for those who consume alcohol modestly. These findings do bring into question, though, the whether consumption of 14 drinks per week should be designated as low-risk behavior, because at this point in the U.S., we designate low-risk drinking as 14 drinks a week or less for men. And you can see the cardiovascular 
outcomes, you know, the negative cardiovascular outcomes really shoot up well before 14 drinks per week. They start to exponentially rise. So probably we should be telling our patients that 14 drinks a week is way too much. Using this study, I would say the risks, looking at the curves they published, the risks start going up at around seven drinks per week. Yeah, I think that's definitely like a new counseling I'll probably be giving. Yeah. So anyway, I thought this was a really interesting article and it will definitely change how I counsel patients. Any other thoughts you had about this study? No, I think the same. I think that, you know, I've always viewed alcohol kind of as a socially acceptable vice and sort of like some other substances. But I think this is definitely something now where I'm definitely going to be drilling a little bit harder about the the quantity. And I, and I do think you're right. The 14 drinks is kind of what we currently consider acceptable. Is that really is that really where I should be pushing my people to as part of like a healthy lifestyle, even people without a substance use problem? Yeah, no, I agree. So we'll have to see how our patients take it. I'll uh, check back with you (laughs) and let you know how it goes. Yeah, actually, it'd be interesting to hear how the people take the new counseling with this kind of information, especially the people that come in and they're proud to let you know that they're drinking their two glasses of wine a night for their cardiovascular health. Will they be kind of devastated to hear this or will they resist it or... Well, they all survived when I told them to stop taking aspirin, so they can probably weather this one too. (laughs) Poor aspirin. Well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at addictionmedgc. You can even record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us, and we might include your comment in your own voice on the air. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.